Hello, and welcome to Mental Dialogue, episode number 254. Today is Sunday, the 29th of October, 2017. And this interview is with my friend Charlene Lee, who is author, thought leader, and world-renowned speaker, as well as principal analyst at Altimeter, a profit company. In this podcast with Charlene, we explore the ongoing disruptive challenges of digital transformation. We also take a closer look at the latest research coming out of profit, the Brand Relevance Index 2017, discussing the importance of content, purpose, and the different cultural aspects by country. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Happy to have you again on the show, Charlene. So Charlene Lee, you are a multiple author. You're the leader of Altimeter, part of the Profit Company. Uh, that's how I understand you. You're also an inspiring speaker and a woman uh, on a mission in this world of digital transformation. So in your better words, surely, explain us who you are and, and what's your mindset these days, Charlene? Oh, sure. Um, so I am, as you described, I'm an author, thinker, strategist, and I am all consumed these days by my next book, which I am frantically trying to piece out time to, to work on, on disruption strategies. Um, but I also work on lots of different things with Altimeter and with um, it was profit looking at everything from our recently launched brand relevance study, which we'll talk about, I think, we to our next report, which is looking at employee experience. And so, uh, pretty wide ranging, but it keeps it fun and interesting. When we look at the com- the concept of digital transformation and how companies are approaching it, obviously, time has passed since we last spoken. Time is passing, and companies are. are m- are more and more aware. How would you describe how transformation is digital transformation is evolving these days? And maybe what are your key insights as to what companies should be doing today to do it better? Well, we just recently published a report on the state of digital transformation. And what was interesting is we do believe that customer and understanding customers and the customer experience and customer journey, people basically understanding technology and digital through the lens of people is the right way to be thinking about this. This is not a technology problem. This is a people problem. And what was interesting is that we found that the number of companies who are actively going out there and working on customer journeys is decreasing. It's gone down slightly, which is kind of astonishing. And when we dig into it, it's partly because people kind of feel that they understand it. They have done it once and feel like they don't need to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, they, it's just a lot of effort. So they say, yeah, we kind of care about customers, but we kind of do it intuitively rather than in a systematic way. And we think that's really dangerous. We have been on this digital transformation kick now for a couple of years, and I think people are just really tired. Now, what does this really mean? When does it end? Mm-hmm. And I think that the reality is it, it doesn't end. It's um, a transformation and a journey that you continue on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're trying to do more research now about how do you sustain that kind of energy and those resources to continue the transformation beyond an initial like six to 12 month push. It's funny. Um, I was speaking yesterday with someone and um, in her youth, she worked at uh, Club Med 
as a gentil organisateur, you know, those the people rallying you and making you work around. And she said, it has a two-year lifespan. Afterwards, you burn out. And it makes me wonder, what is the burnout rate and how it's that much worse these days with this rat race of transformation? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think, again, there's always been burnout amongst these innovators, these disruptors, as I like to call them. They, uh, It's really hard to sustain it. And they are usually driven by a strong sense of purpose and vision and passion. And unless you see, unless you have some sort of payout at the end, at, along the way, um, some sort of validation that your efforts are paying off, it's, it's very difficult to sustain. Mm-hmm. I was talking to one person, she goes, I've been pushing against the wall for five years and the wall just isn't moving. My executives kind of say it, but then they turn around and, and don't put budget against this. I am at my wit's end. What do I do? And my point to her, and I'm like, kudos to you for sticking it out for so long, mm-hmm. five years. Uh, but I don't. if you don't think this is going to change, there's nothing that you can do from where you have can make this change. But you have to exercise the power of two feet and walk out the door. Go to someplace that is going to appreciate and leverage the passion that you can bring to this. Where I go with that particular comment is a look at the, the notion of payout. Because in the end of the day, one could be tempted to think that that is a question of how much money am I going to get uh, at the end of the day, you know, the bonus, the, the private equity buyout or whatever. And I think that the, the challenge with burnout, of course, is actually we're talking about energy. And, and, and within that, there's the focus so that with the hours that I have, I do what I need to do. And where, where I like to focus the conversation is more about doing things that return the energy to you. So as much as you might be working 12 hours or 14 hours, you are even in your daily life re- feeling energy, jumping out of bed, not because you know that there's a payout at the end of four or five years, but because you're doing stuff that matters. And so the challenge, of course, is if that doesn't pay you your rent for the month, then you're out of a home, and that's no good. Yeah, and I think, let me just define by pair, but I think it's it's more um, psychic income that I'm talking yeah. about, emotional income, a sense of accomplishment and change mm-hmm. for, for these people. It, again, most of them are not in it for the money. This is this, You don't do this kind of work, typically, because it's it's... If you really wanted to be like truly disruptive and changing things, you go to a startup with tremendous risk, yeah. Um, yeah. but potentially high payout. These people are motivated by a different thing. They believe in the purpose and the mission of the organization they're working with. And their payout is when change happens. It's when somebody gets an aha moment and goes, oh, I see how we can connect better with our customers. Oh, I see now and understand that employees want to be engaged in a really deep and meaningful way mm. uh, not just say do your work yeah, get, <laughs> really well make the show um, the rich. Yeah, so i think it's it's a different kind of payout and they're just not seeing that so we we mentioned before charlene that it's not about people and of course uh, that i think i'm i'm 100 on that with regard to digital transformation how much do you think it is or and or should be more about the using digital transformation and digital innovation within the company in terms of processes, communication, and so on and so forth, as opposed to innovating in the product I'm selling or in innovating in the way I sell a product. Right. I, I think there's, there's, they're similar and related at the same time. 
I um, think you can come up with the most interesting, innovative product, right? But unless it really is addressing a customer need and the process of getting it into the market, into the hands, explaining it to people, it's never going to get used. And so digital transformation oftentimes isn't as much focused on the product innovation as it is in the way that the company executes. So again, I could have a wonderful product, but if the way I sell it, if the way that people interact with it, engage with the customer service is horrible, no matter how nice that product is, they won't put up with it. Mm -hmm. The entire process has to be put together. And frankly, if you're not attuned to your customers, can you really create the best, most pro innovative product anyways? Yeah, for sure. Probably not. And so those are all process and people and um, policies that in many ways need to be transformed to be much more customer-focused. And people who say, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about the product, they're losing sight that it's not about the product. It's about the customer. So, and you can absolutely so, see it. So you guys are prolific and you have just released your brand relevancy index. So I managed to take a quick spin and, and look at it and check out the four criteria you use for the relevancy. And of course, being a brand guy, I was awfully interested in this. So give us, uh, tell, tell everybody what is this brand relevancy index and, and why you went about doing it. Yeah, so this is the third year we've been doing this at Profit, and Profit is a brand strategy firm. That's where its roots are from. And so we really want to understand what are the drivers of brand relevance, uh, because we think that's that's what's most valuable to a brand. And we think of relevance as it's so important to life, you can't imagine living without them. Like These are brands that are at the center of my life, and if it was gone, my life would be completely different. That's what relevance means. And there's a sense of it's in the eye of the beholder, and it could be different if you're male or female or different age groups or different geographies, but we found that these four main categories of customer obsession, of being ruthlessly pragmatic, uh, distinctly inspiring, and then pervasively innovative are the four key drivers of relevance in people's lives. And what we did is do lots of surveys, and this is the difference when we're rating brands, a lot of brand lists look at assets and how much they spend. That's a corporate point of view. What I love about the Brand Relevance Index is that it's from the view of the consumer. So we surveyed 50,000 consumers in four markets, U.S., U.K., Germany, and China, um, across a, a couple hundred brands in each market, two to three hundred brands. And we find out which ones are the most relevant. And then we publish the top 50 in each of them. So you actually put the list down and then they choose from that list. That's how you choose. We choose a category. So we divide it up into, are you familiar with um, consumer products, entertainment, uh, hotels, airplanes, airlines? And so they have to be familiar with a category in order to rate the brands in that category. So if they've never gone near insurance, they don't get to rate insurance. Mm -hmm. So for example... So we have some brands and some categories that are, are used very frequently. So, for example, media, um, a lot of names and a lot of people can rate those because they're familiar with it. But again, some are more familiar with others than not. Um, in cases, some some people know a lot of the brands, it's just really don't like them. It's not relevant to them. In fact, they, they feel kind of negative about them. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting to see how how it all shakes out. All right, so there are 60 criteria you used. 
in 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 these these four different buckets, right? I suppose they're each associated with the four categories. Were there any of the criteria that uh, stretch across multiple categories in that respect? No, they're all uh, MISA compliant, so they all fit within one category. Mm-hmm. So you know, things like make my life easier is a pragmatic one. It's, it just makes sense that if you're making my life easy, or if you're um, or you're doing things like. Uh, it makes me happy. That's much more around customer obsession than being pragmatic. Oh, so we try to really group out what all of these things do. And, and it's a simple uh, survey. Uh, consumers are asked, how much do you agree with this statement about this brand? So and does Apple make my life easier? Oh, yeah, it does. Uh-huh. Definitely does. It's rather remarkable. Of course, Apple is strong across um, all four countries. Um, in number one for three and then number five for China. Uh, but yet, it's, you know, sometimes you would imagine people are, are more associating or relating to Apple just through one device or one, one product, but actually, it, it, they, you were just talking about before, they, they consider it part of an ecosystem. Right. And they have been really very, very diligent and um, really obsessed about this. And you see the way that they create the products, but not only just the products, but the experience. It's everything from the unboxing to the way you walk into the store to how customer service works with you. All of it is geared towards a certain feel and experience that is very distinctly Apple. Yeah, and on top of that, to their strategy, they have, of course, the, the entire value chain in their hands. And then there's also this notion that everything works together. I mean, let's say between you and me, more or less, perfectly. And so as opposed to an Android, which is sort of spread across and it's multi-device, multi-platform, and and then you have different variations and versions and so on and so forth, it's definitely a more, let's say, cloudy version, even though Android, of course, is favorably ranked. Yeah, well, that may be true. Again, I'm a huge Apple fan, and other people still really like Android. Android is in the top. 10 in every single country too as well. Which is pretty um, And so it's it's one of those things where I'm just looking at the numbers here. You have Android's number three in the UK, number four in Germany, number three in China does better than Apple in China, and number six in the US. So right up there, right, in terms of these different criteria. And we do find that certain categories do better against these things because it's more relevant in our lives. So definitely consumer electronics, entertainment, um, music, those kinds of categories, communications, those tend to do consistently well across all markets. So, so we were talking a little bit before about how this could be different per country. So, of course, the brands are different. Some brands are, are you know, WeChat is not going to be relevant in, in the rest of the world, other, you know, Asia, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Did you find any cultural differences? I mean, let's say relevancy is, is is relevancy, can relevancy be differently interpreted per country? Um, not by the definitions that we have. Um, again, the weightings of how they work and what's important to them vary a little bit. Uh, and so if you're a top brand, for example, and I'm just looking at the numbers here, and in China, what we're finding is that the, the area of being ruthlessly pragmatic is... Um, does is, is much more important in places like China, the UK, and Germany than in the US, actually. 
which is kind of interesting. Um, brands tend to do a little bit worse on that scale comparatively to other places. And it's not because they do worse. It's, that, it's just that across the board, it's not as relevant for everybody does a little bit worse, maybe because our expectations are a little higher here in the U.S., but um, but brands in general in the U.S. get a lower score in the pragmatic category than, for example, in the innovation category. So it's, it's kind of interesting how entire places matter. But what we did, what we found was that there weren't any certain criteria that just fell off the map and didn't matter. Um, and, and that's partly just the way that we constructed it. These are, they appeal to the humanness of what makes a difference in our lives. And what I have found in my work and my research is that even though there are differences in how we do things, how we interact with each other, there are core truths that are true across all cultures. Trust is important. Ease and simplicity is important. Dependability, consistency is important to us. It, these are just sort of branch roots that we have found exist in all cultures. And yet, I would have to believe that the execution of trust differs by country. Right. Because what one considers trustworthy or, you know, like, uh, let's call, you know, to be a little bit uh, generalizing, you know, an Englishman's version of, of signing a contract is generally going to be written because that's their standard, whereas maybe some other cultures are more oral. So trust comes in different ways. Yes. The mechanisms and the executions of brands in these different markets is very, very different. Um, I, I look at IKEA as a great example. They're the only retailer that made it across all four markets and, um, and did try. Actually, didn't do as strong in the U.S., but still wasn't quite in the top 50, but very close. Um, the only retailer that made it across all three outside of Amazon. So the way they're very consistent in the way that they have the stores, supply chains, but the way that the stores are set up, the merchandise that's in there, the, the kind of experiences is really unique to, geo to each geography. But that brand, you walk into an Ikea store in Germany, you walk into an Ikea store in China, in the U.S., it is really locked down and consistent the way you experience that brand. It's really amazing, right? And then you look at Adidas, which is really strong. And its approach to brand is very different than Nike's. Nike is all about culture through sports through sports figures. Adidas does sports, especially soccer, but also brings in music and culture and arts and fashion. So very different ways that they approach it, all very geographically different. The executions are different. Still, both are very strong. They're both top 50 brands in every single geography. So what you find is that there are many, many different paths to get to here, but these top brands do all of these things, all of these different four factors extremely well, really, really well. I didn't get a chance to look at the 60 criteria. I don't know if they're available, but where is mentioned the word purpose? And, I, you know, as one of my favorite words, in, and we talked in Future Proof, is about meaningfulness. Is, mm -hmm. is purpose and meaningfulness anywhere in the relevancy scale? Um, there's this one area which I think comes into that, and it's called makes me feel inspired. It's the whole inspired part of it, you know, distinctly inspired. And that's where purpose, mission, values, creativity, um, so many different ways that you can be inspired. 
So music can inspire you, art can inspire you, entertainment can inspire you. So those categories, as you can imagine, do really well in those areas. Um, but also um, companies like Patagonia, North Face, even Trader Joe's that has a mission for fair trade, those do really well again in the inspired space. Again, more purpose-driven. So what inspires you, right, and, uh, and sustains that? How do you get inspired through these ideas is, is a key part of that. What's interesting is we, 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 we looked at purpose as one of the, the drivers, and it's not consistently um, enough in enough brands, right? right? And it didn't give enough of a punch to people to say, was that something that you really drove relevancy for you? And so we rolled it back into the inspired category because you could be inspired by purpose. Other could be inspired by other aspects of that brand. Mm, that makes total sense. What about for employees? Because as you said, this is a consumer-facing one. You mentioned employee engagement earlier. To what extent does employee relevancy of the brand for the employees play into this? I, I, I mean, and, and clearly you've chosen not to look at it. But I, in my mind, I'm thinking, should you do this against the employees of Nike and Apple? I would have to imagine you would, you, you, I mean, normally you would want that to even index higher uh, for the employees because they're the ones, you know, as you said, the human story, they're the ones driving it. Right. Um, one of the things we look at is employee and employee brand, um, uh, the value proposition of the brand to employees in particular. So what does the brand stand for for employees? Um, and so the employee value proposition is a really important part and component of brand strategy. So there may be an external part, but if it doesn't resonate for the employee experience, the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. Because guess what actually happens in the execution of the external brand? The employees have to execute it. And they don't believe in it because of the internal processes or the way you treat them, the way you compensate them, the way you negotiate with them as a trade union, for example. The whole thing falls apart. So it's um, we haven't done this work facing employees. We do other types of work um, looking and assessing the, the, the strength of that brand value proposition to employees. And what we find is consistently, it's somewhat similar, is do I believe in the brand? It, it, does it ring true to me? Do these brand elements that are out there externally, do they translate internally? Mm. So you don't have to do a broad instrument. You can do a very specific instrument and understand if this is the value proposition externally, how do we express it internally? And are they consistent? Yeah, you can yeah. literally map like the employee, the customer journey, and you map the employee journey against it, and see where the gaps are. Sure. It's a great exercise mm. to do. Like you've invested tons of work into this part of the customer journey to have engagement and understanding of the brand and the strategy. Have you done the parallel investment on the employee side? And it's usually like twenty x to one. Mm. <laughs> so like, wait a minute, it's misplaced mm. because this place. The number one determinant whether that works or not is employee engagement. So it's um, it's an exercise. Yeah, better this. So when you look at relevancy, and uh, I was thinking about what you know, as a product consultancy, you go to a company, you say actually your brand is not as relevant as it could be. How, how does one go about gaining more relevancy? You know, when we you know we have a certain history, we have a certain profile, company, product. And and culture and so on and you know I was thinking specifically well the one that pulls out easily might be content let's make more relevant content 
But how do you go about translating into more relevancy? Uh, see, I think the content is, is a big mistake because you could just put out more content, but the content to do what? Right? Is it to inspire somebody? Is it to help people get things done better so you can increase your pragmatic score? Is it about looking at a particular point in your experience that is just not consistent and people are complaining about it all the time? Um, what we find is that pragmatism is the fastest and easiest way to raise your relevancy score because it is something that's completely under your control. So things like, um, are you dependable? Are you delivering a consistent experience? Uh, are you where and when people need you to be? Mm -hmm. Right? And you can test against those things. Mm -hmm. and, and the easiest one is consistency. Are you there? Are you, are, is the experience consistent every time I come to see you? Because site breaks, if I have to wait for the cash register for eight minutes instead of three, I mean, these are all things under your control. Mm -hmm. Right. And we think about that as brand. Is that really brand? It is about the entire experience that comes under the rubric of brand. So it's uh, when we we'll look at people's numbers, they go, why is our number so low? We look at pragmatism first. I'm like, is it there? And if it's not there, then, well, that's table stakes. You do not get anywhere unless you have that. You can just completely break your relevance if you don't have the pragmatism. Right. So where I was thinking about this was relevancy for the consumer. Uh, and, and there's often when we break down how to do content marketing, we might talk about doing informational, educational, entertainment, mm -hmm. timely, when and where you need it, and so on, as you were mentioning. So there are different rules about, or rules, uh, suggestions, we should say, about yeah. making great content. Mm -hmm. Then, the, And each of these will be relevant for the consumer. The question at some level is, what legitimacy do you have as a brand to be writing this funny joke or signing up this great artist, you know, like an Adidas might? Because there needs to be some kind of coherence consistency with who I am as a brand. Yeah. I, the way that we think about it is that your content strategy needs to have an objective and we have various archetypes that we've developed against a content strategy. So is a content as currency? Anyways, it's trying to get you to give you the information to um, help you with the transaction. Is it uh, a, a window into your organization to create more transparency? Is it about community so that people can actually gather together around a CP, um, uh, user-generated contact so that people feel like they're part of a user group, for example? There are all these different types of archetypes that will inform the type of content that you create. So signing a celebrity, well, which of these does it help, right? What's the purpose of that? How does it increase and, and change the type of experience and the relationship I want to develop with my customer? And so it kind of gives us this grounding and this structure and framework to be able to help you make decisions around content and it aligns the entire organization around what's my primary and my secondary archetypes and objectives um, for what I'm trying to do. So when I think about brand relevance, the, the think one of the issues may be, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well on pragmatic, but our numbers around trust are just horrible. You know, people don't believe in us. They don't understand why we're being here. We're just not inspiring them. So, you know, content as a window might be a really good strategy because it opens the doors to say, this is how we operate. This is who we are. And this is why we care so much about what you are doing.
So it's really helpful when you're repositioning the brand, if you're recovering from a crisis, if you're trying to move who you are and what you are associated for, um, it, it, it becomes really powerful. But I can correlate that content strategies and content types and modalities and channels, but more importantly, the topics and what I want to do with that content to change the relationship and directly link it to the various aspects of the brand relevance index. To be able to say, I need to increase this number, move this, because it's, it's not weak. It's not, it's not strong. I'm strong across all these areas of putting this one in. Hmm. I can go move that. Well, it's, it's somewhat of a small topic within the whole thing, the, the, the notion of content marketing, but it is a rabbit hole I love to go down. And, and we were mentioning celebrities, and the challenge at some level with content is even if you make the greatest content, you have the challenge of distribution. And have you, I was listening to, I think it was Mark Schaefer who was saying at a conference, uh, he was at Anne Hanley's conference, um, saying that it's now a pay-to-play game in inbound. That is to say that, you know, it's not only pay-to-play in social, inbound is pay-to-play. How, has that something that you also have found? And, you know, when we're making great content, are companies still saying, well, you know, what's the reach of this uh, individual? Is it a you know, celebrity? They have two million or three million? Oh, I'll go for the three million. Do you, do you see that or is that just a, a passe thought anyway? Well, it's always been a question of how valid is a celebrity endorsement when you know that they're being paid, right? It, it helps to get the word out, but does it actually move the needle for most brands? Um, I think it helps if you're trying to introduce new brands that people are not familiar with, but does it really move the needle for an established brand? Does Coca-Cola really benefit from that? You know, they, they have a whole celebrity um, program, but you don't see it very often because it just doesn't move the needle. Because everybody already knows Coke. And are you going to really move the needle by having um, a relationship with somebody? Uh, and so it's great if you are introducing new products, I think, to have influencers. It, it makes a bigger punch because it just raises the awareness if you have a lot of people seeing it for the first time. But if people already see it, they don't know it, you know, it, and it, it's it's not necessarily in line with whatever it is that person is doing, you know, Mickey Minaj pushing WebEx or Skype makes no sense whatsoever, right? So they, we, we, these are basics in some ways. But when people are talking about inbound, the number one thing I think isn't celebrity or reach or frequency. It's about how do I find like-minded people with the same problem? And it's a lot of work. But it, the, the beauty of inbound is that once you can find that person, you can get to the right group, understand where that content is to where those people are. And the fact of the matter is, it's um, basic search issues. It's buying and into the right email newsletters, doing the right podcast, getting out there and, and doing the hard slog. And people forget, it's not like one of these things where you can go to a media buyer and say, buy me some inbound. That's not the way it works. Right? Yeah, you build this, especially in the B2B space, over years. Yeah, There's a commitment to it that's needed. Yeah, I mean, the shortcuts are bound to hurt you, bite you in the ass, and especially when we get into this automated emails and you're just spamming people. So, Charlene, um, thank you for having on the show. We, I mean, surely we should have spent another half an hour speaking about more stuff. That is to say, time is of the essence. And um, so for anyone who wants to get the, the um, I noticed that your 
uh, brand relevance index is supremely easy to look at. You don't have to give away your livelihood. Um, but how, how, you know, like in your, you know, your vital statistics, how, what's the best way to get that stuff? Just give us a reminder. I'll put it in the show notes and also how to reach you or follow you. Yeah. So you can find the brand relevance index at Profit's website. It's P-R-O-P-H-E-T.com. Simple and easy. And you can reach me at Charlene at uh, ultimatergroup.com. Beautiful. And of course, on a few social media, let's say at Charlene Lee. Beautiful. Thanks for. And my name is it's, my name is my handle and, and all of the social channels. Of course. All right. Thanks again, Charlene. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.